0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're going to be in John chapter 4 for our Bible study, so if you have a Bible, you can open to John 4. While you're turning there, the ushers are moving up and down the aisles. If you want to grab a Bible from them to follow along, uh, you can just get their attention. And a few announcements, um, Easter... Service will be Sunday, April twenty-first, at the Mid Hudson Civic Center. Uh, the doors will open at nine-fifteen a.m. and the service begins at ten. F- parking is free, and there are invite cards by the thousands in the lobby, and we hope to uh, get them into as many hands as possible as we believe uh, that the message of Jesus' resurrection is the most powerful uh, force in the world, the hearing of that message uh, and the, 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 uh, the obtaining of it by those that will believe. And so uh, get invite cards in the hands of your friends and family and have them come and just hear the message. You guys who come to church here, you know uh, we're, we don't, we're not after anything from anybody. We don't want anybody's money. We don't even we don't even have a roster you can't even say that we want that you know we just want to give that message out and uh so we make those invite cards available for you also night of prayer this coming sunday night march 24th 5 p.m join us as we pray and worship as a church body spring family festival will be april 6th from 3 to 5 p.m it's a sunday afternoon no it's a saturday afternoon you'll remember that because i screwed it up uh, there will be games, music, food, cupcake contest, and more. Uh, there's more uh, information on the website. And if you want to sign up for a particular part of that cupcake contest or whatever, uh, use a sign me up card in the seat pouch in front of you. Also, a special uh, message. On Saturday, March 30th, so that's a week from this Saturday, Peter Solicito and Doug Outwater, both who come to church here, older men in the church who uh, have a depth in the scriptures and an understanding of Bible prophecy, are going to be sharing about the coming Ezekiel War. So uh, for those of you that know nothing about end times prophecy, there's a fascinating segment of scripture, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, that prophesies of a war that will come that will we see the stage set for right now in the world exactly according to how ezekiel lines it out and so they're gonna open that segment of the scriptures for us on that saturday morning it will be at 10 a.m march 30th in the youth room so on the in the kids wing Uh, and if we have to move into here because of size we'll do that Um, so come for a time of encouragement and knowledge of coming events. Men's Breakfast, same morning, March 30th, 8 a.m. in the solid ground. And Oasis will also meet on March 30th at 12 p.m. So there are events at 8, 10, and 12 on Saturday, March 30th, for you to um, take advantage of and be a part of as a church. We are in John chapter 4 for our Bible study. A nuclear bomb will go off when my clock is done, so we'll be finished by then. Uh, (laughs) But we're there, and um, what I'd like to do is begin tonight our study by actually just reading this passage. We're going to be in verses 1 through 34, and once I'm finished reading the passage, we'll work through it, but I won't read each part again, so I want to make sure that we get the whole uh, picture. So if you would just look with me at the chapter, starting in verse 1, it says that when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard, so Jesus knew that they heard that Jesus himself had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, except his disciples. When he heard this, he left Judea and he departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. If you remember the layout of the land, Judea is in the south. Galilee is in the north. And Samaria is in between. And so he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Old Testament, Shechem. We may ring a bell if you've read the book of Genesis. Near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So about 12 noon. And there came a woman from Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. He asks her for water. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. And so we realize there was two people at the well, Jesus and this Samaritan woman. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, which am a woman of Samaria, For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That was true. So Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that said to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. So the woman said unto him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank from it himself and his children and his cattle? And so Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinks of this water, the water of this well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting Life, different water. So the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. And Jesus said unto her, Go and call your husband and come back. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not your husband. In that you said truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you don't even know what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said unto him, I know that when Messiah comes, which is called the Christ, the Savior, that when he is come, that he will tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am, that he is italicized It's not there in the original language. I that speak to thee am. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no man said, "What are you doing, or why are you talking to her?" The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city, and said to the men I love this part come see a man which told me all things that i ever did is not this the christ then they went out of the city and they came to him and in the meanwhile his disciples prayed him saying master eat but he said to them i have food that you know nothing of therefore said the disciples to one another has any man brought him anything to eat And Jesus said to them, my meat or my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. While we were away this past week, um, we we saw a lot of different places and different terrains and landscapes and uh, where we ended up at the end of our journey, our last leg, we spent three days in the Smoky Mountains, uh, about 30 miles west of Asheville, North Carolina, and um, beautiful place situated in the Smokies, just gorgeous landscapes. And on one of the evenings that we were there, uh, we were making dinner. We were just unwinding from the day. Um, and everybody was kind of doing their thing in the um, Airbnb rental that we were in. And I was kind of surfing through Netflix and looking uh, for something to just put on in the background while Georgia was making dinner and we were all kind of doing our thing. And I stumbled onto this documentary called The Dawn Wall. And uh basically, it chronicles, and, and by the way, it's awesome, it's unbelievable there there are some words that maybe, depending on how you know. You, you might not want to hear, but other than that, it's absolutely unbelievable. But basically what it does is it follows uh, and chronicles the, um, the, the the feet of these two American rock climbers. I think the, the guy's name is Tommy Caldwell, and the other guy's name is Kevin Jorgeson. And uh, the, the, basically the main character is this guy Tommy Caldwell, and he is a professional rock climber, kind of a prodigy, took to it when he was very young. And he wanted to climb uh, the mountain El Capitan, the, the rock face in Yosemite National Park. But he wanted to do something that no one had ever done before because people had climbed that at different places and there were different ways to do it. But there was one particular segment of the wall uh, that's called the Dawn Wall because it's kind of the the segment that the sun hits first thing when the sun rises in the morning. And there's the segment of it that's almost sheer rock face. There's nothing to grab a hold of. There's nothing, really very little to even get a finger hold on. And because of that, no one has ever climbed that segment of the mountain before. And so he set forth to do it. He wanted to be the first one, and he wanted a partner, so he pulled in his friend Kevin, uh, and they made plans, and they trained and prepared for a long time. Basically what they did is that they divided the span, and and I have a photo of it that can go up on the screen, uh, a photo of El Capitan. They divided the course that they would take of this Dawn Wall into 20 what they called pitches. And so one pitch is one segment of the wall, and they would do, try to do as many of these as they could uh, in the course of a day. And they all have different degrees of difficulty. And you'll notice that right about the middle, there's one that goes uh, sideways. You know, and that is probably the most difficult. It took them about a week to a week and a half to get across that. Now, they slept on the mountain. They hung tents. And, and it was just this wild documentary that we watched uh, of these men that were just scaling this wall and basically trying to get to the top. And so 20 pitches, it took 19 days and they did it. Uh, they, they, they got over this wall, this amazing wall. And I uh, kind of was looking at that and taking all that in and then considering the study that we have here this morning. Uh, And and the Lord began as I was driving 3,000 miles to uh, string some things together for me and and reveal something absolutely amazing about Jesus Christ and about what he has done. When we read the Bible, uh, we read a lot about walls. It's a semi-consistent theme as you go through the scriptures that you see walls. Uh, sometimes you see walls that exist in order to, uh, you know, be a barrier for something like the walls of Jericho, you know, and we know the story of how the walls of Jericho came tumbling down God knocking down those walls. Other times we read in the Bible about walls uh, that serve as prison walls. And so we see Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail praising God at midnight and he caused the walls of the prison to be shaken from the foundations and God took down those walls and he set them free. Uh, there are other times that walls are used symbolically in the scripture, like in Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says that Jesus has broken down the wall of separation that existed between Jew and Gentile and ultimately between man and God. And so what we see is that in the Bible, there are walls. And sometimes the walls are bad, like in the examples I just gave you. And other times, walls are good. Like in Isaiah, it talks about the walls of salvation. You know, and those walls are good walls. We want to be ensconced inside that, whatever that means, you know. And so there's bad walls and there's good walls. But what we see as the theme in scripture is that anytime there is a wall, that is keeping someone back from God's purpose in their life or from God's promise or from God's fullness or from something that he has for them, then that wall is something that is an affront to God and it's something that he wants removed out of the way. Anytime there is something that is a wall of imprisonment something that is confining us and keeping us in not just keeping us out but keeping us inside from experiencing something that he has beyond the borders of those walls then that wall is an affront to god and anytime there's a wall that's separating us from the awareness of his presence from an awareness of his person of his blessing of his glory of His goodness in our lives. Anytime there's a wall like that, God doesn't like that wall. And He's in the business of taking walls down. And I find that amazingly significant in the Gospel of John, as we've really been kind of tracking with Jesus from the beginning of His ministry up till now. Because what we saw in our study a couple of weeks ago is that Jesus walked into the temple that served as walls of barrier that were keeping them religiously contained and separate from god and jesus said the sign that i'm going to give is that i'm going to tear down these walls and i'm going to rebuild it in a different way in three days speaking of what he would accomplish through his death and resurrection and then from that point the rest of the ministry of jesus was tearing down walls he met with Nicodemus that we saw in our study last time, who is stuck within those walls. And Jesus wanted Nicodemus free from the barrier of those walls. And so Jesus scaled the walls of Nicodemus' religious barriers in order to set him free. And what we see in our study tonight, as Jesus encounters this woman, is that she has a different type of wall. Her wall isn't a religious wall that's keeping her inside and separate but rather hers are walls that are keeping her outside, saying that she's not good enough to come in to the presence of God, that she's not good enough to come inside the walls of salvation. And when Jesus sees walls like that, Jesus wants to scale them. And he doesn't care if it's the dawn wall or if it's sheer rock face. He's going to do what he's got to do in order to scale a wall that's keeping someone from himself. And so what we see in this chapter is we see Jesus scaling a high, impenetrable wall in order to liberate and bring a woman into freedom and into salvation. Now, the men in our example, Tommy and Kevin, they divided their climb into 20 pitches, 20 segments of the wall that they had to clear and conquer in order to meet their goal. But what we see with Jesus in this text is we see five pitches there are five things that jesus does in his encounter with this woman in order to set her free and we'll see those things as we move through it because he wants her inside now the setup for this for this uh segment this interaction that jesus had with this woman was first of all an occasion we read that it says that the pharisees that jesus knew that the pharisees Heard that he had made more disciples than john the baptist and so what jesus knew when he understood this is that his enemies had the potential to leverage knowledge to cause divisiveness in people that are supposed to be unified the disciples of john and the disciples of jesus are not two separate denominations there's not baptists and pentecostals you know and and jesus realizes that if he stays where he is then the enemies are going to capitalize on this potential distraction and they're going to sow division into the disciples of john and the disciples of jesus and jesus doesn't want that he doesn't want division in his body he doesn't want division amongst believers and so what he does realizing the potential of this is that he says to those that are following with him at this point It's time for us to leave this region and bring our ministry back up into the region of the Galilee. And so the occasion was this potential division. But then that occasion is followed by an absolute. It tells us there that he must needs pass through Samaria. Now, first glance of that, you might look and say, well, that's kind of obvious. I mean, if Galilee's in the south... Sorry. Judea's in the south, Galilee's in the north, Samaria in between. Then wouldn't it be obvious that he must needs go through Samaria? Not quite. And here's why. Because there was such animosity, such racial and religious tension that existed between these two people groups, that no Jew would set foot on Samaritan ground. In order to travel from one region to the other, they would go to the Jordan River and they would walk up along the path that followed the river and then they would come back into the land in Galilee. And so they would literally go around Samaria because they wouldn't give the Samaritans credence. Now, who were the Samaritans and why was there this tension? It goes back a couple of hundred years. When the Jews were in captivity, in Babylon, and don't worry about knowing and understanding all of the history. Some of them were left behind during that season. It was 70 years long. And the Assyrians, who were a completely different enemy nation, infiltrated the land, and some of them intermarried with the Jews that stayed behind during those 70 years. And the offspring of those marriages were half Jews, half Assyrians. And they lived in this area that came to be known as Samaria. And so the Jews despised them because they weren't pure Jews. There was this racial tension. But there was also religious tension. Because the Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim, which is kind of where this whole episode takes place, that that was the true place that God revealed himself and wanted to be worshipped. That was the place where Moses wanted the law, or God wanted through Moses, the law to be shouted from one mountain to the other. And it was a very sacred site. And so they held to the fact that they were the legit worshipers of God and that the Jews were worshiping in the wrong place. So there was this whole racial tension. There was religious tension. And thus the Jews having that purebred blood and having claims to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem They felt superior, and they wouldn't give the Samaritans any credence. They would go around Samaria. But Jesus, it says, that he must needs go through Samaria. And the reason for that is because Jesus has a reason. Jesus has a purpose. Jesus has something that he wants to do. He must needs. So what he does is he goes through Samaria, and he comes to the area historically that would be known as Shechem. And we're told that Jacob's well was there, And that it says that Jesus being wearied from his journey. Now that just blows my mind. To think of the Son of God being weary from his journey. And obviously in a state of physical thirst. He comes to this well and he sits down. And as his disciples go into the village to buy food. Jesus finds himself alone. And then off in the distance now here comes this woman. Bearing a pitcher of water that's surrounded by invisible walls that only jesus can see and as she approaches the well jesus looks at her and he engages her in a conversation by the way you may find this interesting this interaction that jesus has with this woman is the longest interaction that jesus has with a person that's recorded in the whole entire new testament It's between Jesus and this woman at the well and thus he begins this conversation by asking her a question and he's going to begin scaling this wall. He asks her for a drink. He says, would you please give me some water? Now, we know that Jesus is thirsty, but that's not the reason why Jesus engages this woman and it's not the reason why he asks her for something. He doesn't ask her for something because he wants something for himself. He's asking her for something because he wants something for her. And what Jesus does in this is that he allows, and this is important because it's part of how he scales this wall, is that he allows a physical condition that he is feeling, this thirst and weariness that he has, to motivate compassion for a spiritual need that he sees that this woman has he translates his physical feeling and he projects it upon what she's going through spiritually and he allows it to motivate him to engage her into this conversation and thus he asks her for something that she needs i wonder how often god does this in our lives i wonder how often god Asks us for things that he knows we need. Like when our kids they come to us and, and they don't say it because they don't understand to be able to verbalize it, but they come to us desperate for leadership. And they're asking us to lead them. And, and and really what's happening is that God is asking us for something that He knows that we need, because sometimes I don't know how to lead my kids because I don't even know how to be led. And I don't know if I'm the only one here that ever feels that way. But sometimes God puts us in those types of circumstances. Sometimes I have a wife that needs to be loved, and so she's coming to me, and she maybe isn't verbalizing it, but she's asking me for love. But not only do I not have that to give her, it's something that God knows that I need for myself. And God has this way of having people, him through them, ask us for things that he knows that we need not because he wants to show us that we don't have it because he wants to bring us to the place where we can receive it and so he asks this woman for something that she needs and here's the first pitch of Jesus' ascent towards this woman's salvation of bringing her in the first pitch is that Jesus identified with her need Jesus identified with her need And that's important. That's amazing. Because for me to think about and consider the fact that Jesus Christ, who is called the water of life, that he could be experiencing thirst. That blows my mind. To think that the one who created the waters is thirsty. To think that the one who rules over the flood, the Bible says, that he sits enthroned above the deep. The one who spoke the very waters into existence, whose spirit hovered over them in the beginning that energized them to give life. The one whom Job says that he opens the fountains of the deep. The one who in the days of Noah flooded the earth and caused all of it to be underwater. That the very one who is the water of life would allow himself to experience thirst. But he did it on purpose. Because it's in identifying with the needs of, of those that he's trying to reach, that he finds his way into their life to reach them. You see, have you ever noticed that when someone is strong in an area where you are weak, it brings admiration. I know for me, I admire people that are strong in areas that I'm weak. But I find that I connect with people through their weaknesses. I admire people for their strengths, but I connect with them and their weaknesses. And that's exactly what God did and coming to our level to identify with our needs. That's what he was doing when he came into the world. He came into the world and he felt our needs. And his thirst at that well that day was the first pitch in scaling the wall of her freedom. He identified with her need and it gave him compassion. Now she responds to Jesus as he asked for this drink. And it's amazing to me that she doesn't respond according to his question, but rather she responds to the fact that he's in a conversation with her. She doesn't yet acknowledge that he asked for water. She simply says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask water from me, which I'm a a woman of Samaria? She's amazed by the fact that he's even talking to her. She says, first of all, I'm a Samaritan, and Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Second of all, I'm a woman, and Jewish men don't engage women in conversation, especially women like me. And she's taken back by the fact that Jesus engages her in this conversation. And this is the second pitch of Jesus' climb up this woman's walls of salvation. The second pitch is that he invited her into this conversation to make a connection with her in spite of her inferiority. See, she recognizes that in his eyes, she doesn't even know who he is yet, but she recognizes automatically, obviously, that he has probably wants nothing to do with me because this man who is a Jew... If he's anything like I think he is, he sees inferior. That's what's in front of him right now. On every level, religiously, racially, in gender, in every other thing. My values, the fact that I'm here at this hour of the day, which we'll talk about later. In every way, this woman is feeling her inferiority right now. And she's amazed, not with what he said, but that he said anything to her. Why would you talk to me? And I'm amazed at Jesus in this, that he is not put off by the fact that she is less than. She is inferior. I mean, who isn't inferior to Jesus, right? But her inferiority does not stop him from bridging the gap to her salvation and to her need. And this helps me. You know why? Because I'll tell you a secret. I live my life feeling inferior and and i'm probably not alone i think all of us probably have that tendency i know that there are there are a handful of people and i kind of admire them and at the other hand they kind of disgust me that they really do believe that they're better than everybody else (laughs) you know that they really believe that they're the most gifted the best looking you know the most talented that they're the furthest along you know i mean a lot of people put that front on but they don't really believe that some people really do but i think most of us and I might be wrong. It could just be me. You know, we, we kind of live in this thing that we're maybe not quite what we should be or what we could be or what we want to be. This whole thing of being inferior. This was me from the time I was a child. I mean, I have an overachieving brother who is like off the charts in every level, except I'm better looking. I, I am. If he's, if he's, he, I'm sure he's not listening right now, but he knows it, you know. That's, I, I have him on that. But I would trade that Maybe, you know, because in every other way, yeah, I know what you're thinking, right? You're like, he must be really, really ugly. You know, <laughs> he, you know never mind. I'll, go, I'll come back, you know. But, but I, I live my life in kind of his shadow. And, and my parents were kind of in that realm of, you know, we're going to make you better by making you feel like you're not good enough, you know. And so I've kind of lived my whole life in this thing. And then where I grew up, I grew up in this little farm town outside of Rochester called Hilton. Anybody ever heard of Hilton before? It's a cow town. And, and nothing happens there. It's worse than Nazareth. You know how it talks about how anything could good come from Nazareth? And so, you know, I, I kind of like look at my life and I think, you know, I, I'm already inferior in every way in the eyes of men. And why would Jesus want anything to do with Hilton or anything that comes out of Hilton? And so I kind of live my life here, and so when I see Jesus, and he's not put off by someone's genuine inferiority, and we're going to see that she's inferior in more ways than just her race and her gender, and that Jesus isn't put off by that, but that he went out of his way. And he wearied himself literally to get down on the level of a woman who has needs, who's inferior. And then he identifies with her and he engages her in a conversation because he doesn't care that he's inferior. He loves her in spite of the fact that she's inferior. And that fills me with great hope. And it's part of him scaling the wall towards his freedom. He invited her in, and he connected with her in spite of her inferiority. Well, Jesus goes on now, and he identifies himself. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, and he's so much more than a Jew? And so he identifies himself, and he lets lets her in on the fact that he's more than a Jew, and he responds this way. He says, if you knew, three things he says, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it was that was speaking with you, then you would have asked of me, and I would have given you, and then a new substance in the text, he says, living water. Artisan springs, wells that spring up from outside. If you knew the gift of God, what God wanted to impart to you, and who it was that was offering you this gift, and what this gift was, this living water, Jesus says, then you would have asked from me, and I would have given you this living water. It would have been your question, your ask, not mine. So what does Jesus do? And this is the third pitch in this uh, climb of Jesus towards this woman is that he informed her, pitch number three, is that he informed her of his ability to meet her need. He discloses to her that he's aware that she is thirsty, And he says, I would have given you or I would give you living water, something that you didn't even know that was possible, something that would satisfy from within. And so Jesus then hears from the woman and she kind of is confused because she's thinking physical and he's talking spiritual. And she says, you don't have a bucket. The well is deep. And who do you think you are? Jacob dug the well and you don't even have a bucket. So how are you going to give me water from a well when you're asking me for a drink? And how are you? And she's confused because she thinks Jesus is talking physical and Jesus is trying to speak to her in the spiritual. And so he explains it to her. He says that you're drinking from water here that's going to make you thirst again. That's why you're here every day coming back. That's why you're satisfying your thirst every day. That's why you keep coming back for more every day because this water is going to keep you thirsty. He said, but if you drink the water that I give, you will never thirst again. That water will spring up. That's a well from the inside. It's an artesian well that comes from the inside. And she confesses her need to him in verse 15. She says that the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. That's important. She confesses. He's gotten through. He's climbing the wall. He's scaling the horizontal section. She says, I'm thirsty. You nailed it. There is something inside of me. Can I tell you something? Church, Christian, human, male, female, young, old. Can I tell you something? Everyone's thirsty. Every single one of us in this room has a thirst. Ever since the Garden of Eden When Adam ate from the tree of knowledge and was cut off from the life of God, he became a withered branch. And every one of his descendants, which includes you and I that are here tonight, unless you know something that I don't know, every one of us have a thirst. One of the things that I do for fun and also because I have to is collect firewood each year. And I'm amazed When I cut down a tree to watch that Almost immediately within an hour The leaves of a tree will wither When it's separated from its roots And what happened to humanity When Adam separated from God Is that a thirst was born inside of us And we spend our lives Trying to satisfy that thirst And every single one of us Have a well That we are accustomed to drawing from To try to satisfy that thirst For some, your well is a constant need for affirmation. That's why every day you're looking at how many likes you have. If anyone has commented on your post or on your photo or on your video or liked the fact that you went on vacation. And so you're searching for affirmation, and that affirmation for you is is a well. It's something that satisfies, but it's a well that ultimately leaves you more thirsty because you get the affirmation, but it's not enough, and you find yourself you have to go back for more. For some, the well is an unhealthy drive for success or to excel or to be admired by people. For others, the well is an addiction, whether it's sexual or whether it's spending or whether it's some substance that you find that you have to keep going to the well and keep putting something inside to try to satisfy the need that you feel. For some, it's the need to project a perfect image, to have perfect kids or a perfect house or a perfectly clean car whatever it is that motivates you that invigorates you that you find yourself going deeper and deeper into and closer and closer to and more frequently visiting to try to satisfy something on the inside that's what you're thirsty for but the problem is that water can never satisfy because it's filled with salt And no matter how much of it you drink, it's going to call you to drink that much more. And ultimately, it's going to dehydrate you and suck the life out of you until it kills you. And every single one of us knows what it means to be thirsty. And what Jesus is saying to this woman and to us is that it doesn't matter what the well is. It won't satisfy you. It will only leave you craving more. But what I can give you The gift of God that's freely provided by me is not a well that you have to come to every single day and try to eke a drop out of it in order to sustain yourself. But the water that I will give is an artesian well. An artesian well is a water source that has natural ground pressure and thus it springs up out of the ground. You don't need a bucket, you don't need a pump. You don't need anything to draw it up. It comes up on its own. And what Jesus is saying is that when I give you the drink that I came to provide, and you drink of this water, that water is going to become from the inside of you, not from the outside, but from the inside, it's going to be an artesian well that springs up into everlasting life, age-abiding life. That not only speaks of quantity, but quality. He's like, that's the water that I can give to you. Well, the conversation continues as Jesus goes on. And I love what Jesus does next because he's got a very challenging portion of the wall to climb now. Because the woman confesses her thirst and she asks. That's what he said, right? He said, if you ask, I'll give it to you. And she asks. She said, Lord, give me this water. She made the request. And so Jesus quickly changes the subject. In verse 16, he says, go and call your husband here wait, 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 how how did we get on husband? We were on water, we were on satisfaction, we were on eternal life, and you're twisted, what what do you mean go and call my husband here? So the woman looks at Jesus, maybe a little suspicious, maybe a little inquisitive, and she says, I don't have a husband, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, the living water, this is strange, Jew, is this a dream, what's going on? He says, call your husband here. You ever have a dream, and like all of a sudden you're in a different place, place how did i get here you know and and it's kind of the conversation you know what do you mean call my husband And, and jesus says you're right in saying that you have no husband you have had five husbands and the man that you're living with now is not your husband and she gives herself away because she replies to jesus and she says sir i perceive that you're a prophet she probably had a half smile on her face she probably thought have you been reading my mail did you hack my Instagram, you know, uh, have you been talking to my parents, you know, this whole thing. But she also knows this guy's a Jew. He's not been hanging out in Samaria. I've never seen him before. He doesn't know anything in my life. And so half smile, but in full honesty, she looks at him and she says, you know something about me that no one else could know about me. And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, what Jesus does here in this pitch is that he, number four, he isolates her issue. He isolates her issue. He goes right to the core of the well that she has been drinking from for God only knows how long. And he puts his finger right on it. He goes right for it. If she's going to drink the water that he's going to provide, then there has to be a transition from the water that she has been drinking, and thus Jesus goes right to the core of it. And he puts his finger directly on the wound. Now, if you ever had a scar and someone touches a scar, the touch of a scar reminds you of the wound, but it it doesn't, you know, turn you away. But if you have an open wound and someone touches your wound, I I had a, a, I think I fractured my wrist on a hike with my son. I never got it checked out, but it hurt long enough that I think something broke in there. There's a brother in this church, Carl. I don't know if he's here tonight his daughter is he if he shakes your hand he could break your wrist i mean this guy's just like and and so i go and i shook his hand and i Aah! you know and he's like whoa, whoa i was like no that's nothing you know no when you touch a wound a person feels it and what jesus does in this instance by going to this woman and exposing what she's gone through and where she's been drinking from is he doesn't touch a scar he touches a wound and she feels it and she immediately, in the feeling of this whole thing, she goes into this whole diversion where she begins to ask questions now. She, she asks Jesus a question. She diverts him. She goes, hey, our fathers, you're a prophet. Our fathers said to worship here, but your people say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. I went to a church that said Calvinism is the right way. And, 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 and I went to another church that said Armenianism is the right way. I went to some people that said, once you're saved, you're always saved. Other people said that you can lose your salvation. I, some people say, there, there is no hell And you, you ever been around someone? Yeah. You, you hit the wound. You bring up the issue. And all of a sudden now, it's a theological debate. It's a diversion. Now, she's asking questions of Jesus. And maybe the questions are legitimate. And maybe they're not. But most likely, she is shielding from dealing with the issue that's right in front of her face right now and that is the thing now you say why in the world would jesus do this this woman is at the well at noon nobody goes to the well at noon that's why it's just jesus and the woman the time that you go to the well is either early in the morning or late in the evening and the reason for that is because people work during the day and it's hot during the day and you don't carry water during that time So the fact that this woman is at the well at noon, the fact that it's been exposed that she has had five husbands, and we don't know what happened to them, or if it was divorce or death or anything else, that's not told to us. But what we can gather is that this woman is already feeling shame about who she is in the life that she's been living. She doesn't want to be around people. And now she's around a person who not only is exposing her shame but he's making it shameful right in her face and she's like whoa whoa, whoa. what it what in the world is it? and we ask the question we say why is jesus doing this there's two reasons one is because that's the well that's been drying her up for a long time and she must be free of it if she's going to live that's number one but that's not the greater reason the greater reason why jesus exposes and isolates her infirmity Her iniquity in this scene, listen, is because it's the broken parts of us that the grace of God comes in through. See, he doesn't come into the perfect image that we portray of what we are supposed to be and what we want other people to think that we are. He doesn't meet us there. See, Jesus didn't come and identify with us and lay down his life and bleed out on a cross because he loves some future version of what I am not yet. He gave his life so that he could meet me in my brokenness. And thus he comes to her at the place of her brokenness because that's the door where healing and freedom and grace is going to come into her life. And so he's not exposing this because he wants to make a shame of her or embarrass her or tell her how wicked she is. He's doing it because that's the very thing, that very struggle, that very wretchedness that you feel and that I feel that I hate about my life, that I don't even want God to see and that I think I could never approach him with this side of me facing him. It's always going to be this side. And thus I always wonder why I'm not experiencing the grace of God. you know why? Because the grace of God meets us in our weakness. It meets us in our shame. It meets us in our brokenness. And thus it's in the place of her infirmity that Jesus now is going to set her free. It's natural to me that she diverts, spins around. Whoa, religion, Calvin, whoa. You know, what's true, what's not? It's also amazing to me that Jesus answers her question. He says, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. Salvation is of the Jews. On this issue, the Jews are right. But it's really not a big deal because the day is coming when it won't matter to you or to them where God is worshipped because God is so much bigger than the place He is worshipped that once you get to know who He is, all of these little peripheral sidebar things become nothing. And if you're a person that gets hung up on the peripheral sidebar things, listen, there are answers to your questions, and that's important. But I tell you this, is that the closer you get to God, the more you realize that those things are nothing and that he is so much bigger than all of the issues that we debate and divide over, that to know his glory and his presence in our lives makes those things die. He says, look, the day's coming, and now is. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter. It's a small thing. She wants out. She's done. She she throws the Hail Mary statement here. She just goes, oh, well, when Messiah comes, which is called the Christ, he'll teach us all things. He'll lead us into all things. And maybe with her back turned and now ready to head away, Jesus says his final statement to this woman. He says, I that speak to you am that's the most profound statement in the entire passage because jesus says two things two things in that in that little tiny sentence the first thing is the obvious is that he identifies himself but the way that he identifies himself is as the i am in the book of exodus when moses asked god what his name was a name is someone's identity it's who they are it speaks of their whole person God's official name on his birth certificate. And I I know that God has no birth certificate because he has no beginning and no end. But the, the official name that God gave himself when he spoke to Moses was I am that I am. And the reason that he gave that name is because God refuses to be incarcerated by the name or the title that he would be given by man. Man gives God titles all the time. The Lord is my defender. The Lord is my shield. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my righteousness. The Lord is my provider. The Lord is my peace. And it goes on and on and on. But God says, my name is I am, because I will not be confined even by the things that you try to put on me as labels. I am what I am. And the fact that he identifies himself as the I am to this woman is because he is saying that if I want to save a weak, immoral, inferior woman of samaria and go out of my way and expose myself to weariness to do it and meet with her in her brokenness then that's what i'm going to do because i'm god i am that's the first thing that he's saying is identifying himself but the second thing that he is saying to her when he says that speak to you he said i that speak to you am that's the answer to her first question remember her first question How is it that you speak to me? And he says, I that speak to you. You say, what's so significant? What's so powerful about that? Here's what it is. Is that for her, every dot... By the way, this is the fifth pitch of Jesus' climb up the wall, and that is that he infuses her with hope. Because when he says those words, everything connects. He's passing through Samaria... He's thirsty, identifying with my need. He's sitting on this well right now. He's talking to me, though I be inferior. He's got something for my life. He gives the answer. He knows what my greatest need is. He's isolated my weakness and shown that he's willing to forgive me in spite of my immorality. And when he says, I that speak to you, she realizes that if he is speaking to me, then that means not only is he the Savior, but that he's willing to save Me. And she got it. It clicked. You know how we know that? Because she doesn't say another word. She doesn't say, wait, whoa, 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 what do you say? She got it. She got it, so much she got it, that she drops her bucket. And that's some of my favorite words in the Bible, that she dropped her bucket. Because what happened in that moment is that Jesus came into her life in such a profound and powerful and eternal way that immediately, automatically, the thirst that she had inside was no longer relevant in her life. She dropped the very thing that she came to do in that moment, and she runs into the village, and she has no shame now. She's in the village going, Look, a man, he told me everything I ever did. Those guys in the village are going, Whoa, whoa, what? (laughs) I know some of the things that you've done. I was on the other side of that. You know, and they're going, What? And now, no shame. She doesn't care if it's 12 noon. She doesn't care if it's nine in the morning, three in the afternoon. She's She's free. She's free. She's free. What's the point of the passage? The point of the passage is this. Is that Jesus scales the walls of separation that keep people back from him and that he did it for her and if he did it for her, then who won't he do it for? Do you know and realize that this passage that we just read is the direct fulfillment of a prophecy, a specific prophecy? We're told three times in the passage that this Conversation took place at Jacob's well in Shechem. We're told it was the parcel of land that Jacob gave to Joseph. We're told that it's Jacob's well. And then the woman says, Hey, Jacob dug this well. That's significant in the passage. Why does John make it clear to us where this conversation took place? Here's why. Because in Genesis chapter 49, verse 22, was it 22? It'll go up on the screen. It might be 19. My you know, it's time for me to stop. The nuclear bomb is about to go off here on the floor in front of me. It is 22. Jacob prophesied over his sons. And when he came to Joseph, he said, Joseph is a fruitful bower, a fruitful branch, even a fruitful branch by a well whose branches run over the wall. Now think about what it says. He's a fruitful branch by a well whose branches run over the wall. His fruit runs over the wall. In Joshua 24, 32, the second to last verse in the book of Joshua, we are told in that passage, it says that the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in the parcel of ground that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for, for, for an inheritance. Listen, here, here, here connect it. Connected. Joseph was buried by the well. Joseph was buried in the place here. His bones were buried by this well. Jacob prophesied, and he will be a fruitful Joseph, a fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall. Joseph was a type of Jesus Christ. Listen, this conversation is a fulfillment of a prophecy That the greater than Joseph, Jesus, would grow up by the well, that his branches would scale the wall, and his fruit would be reached by those on the other side. You see, Jesus did it. He climbed the wall of salvation for her sake, and he brought her in. So what's the message, Jesus, in all of this? By the way, you realize that the passage closes? If you look at the last verse of the passage, verse 34, when, remember they said, did you eat anything? And he says, I have food that you don't know anything about. And, and, and then he said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That was, that's what satisfied Jesus, is to finish the work of the Father. And, and here's why that's important and, and significant. Because if you read John chapter 19, verse 28 through 32, the very end of Jesus' life, The very last thing that he said when he was on the cross before he said it is finished. Anybody know what it is? What he said? Someone said it. Say it loud. He said, I thirst. The last thing that Jesus said on the cross before he said it is finished is he said, I thirst. The only other time that we read Jesus saying anything like it besides John chapter 4, he said, I thirst. Why did he say that right before he gave up the ghost? Here's why because we wanted humanity to know, is that he came into this world and he lived his life and died his death in order to identify with our brokenness and to provide a way that through that very brokenness that we possess, that we might come into a relationship with the true and living God and not only know him, but be healed and satisfied. Jesus would say, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly will flow torrents of living water. That's a promise that he gave. I'd ask you to stand with me as we close our service tonight. And I wonder if there are any of us here that there's an area of our life like this woman that we've been hiding, obviously, from others. But even more than that, we've been hiding it from God. The secret place of our shame The thing that causes us to go to the well at noon. The thing that causes us to isolate from others. The thing that makes us feel like we can never truly expose who we truly are. Because if we did, then it would just be nothing but shame. What I want you to know tonight is that it's in that very thing that God wants to meet with you the strongest. He already knows that it's there. You can't hide it from Him. And he's not waiting for you to get it right so that he can do something greater in your life. No, it's through that very thing. That's the place. That's the opening. That's the wound. And if maybe you're here tonight, right now, you know what that thing is in your life. That thing is the greatest shame. It's the greatest barrier. It's the greatest rock that's keeping you back from knowing him. And I wonder if just maybe with the lifting of your hand, you would say, I want God to take this. I want God to fill this. I want God to meet me here, and I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to know freedom. When He says that the truth will make you free, I want to know what it means to be made free. Are there any here that would have the courage to raise their hand? They would be willing to lift that to God and say, God, I am thirsty. Would you give me a drink? Father, I want to pray tonight for my brothers and sisters. Maybe that they know you, but there's a thirst, there's a need. There's a shame. You're the I am. You identified with every desire, every bit of iniquity. You know every need. And you say that you're the living water, the living water that can satisfy to the deepest place that flows as torrents from within. Lord, we open ourselves to you right now and we ask you, Father, we ask you that you'd meet with us here. We abhor these things, Lord we confess them before you and we ask you to free us and forgive us. We pray collectively, Lord, give me this water. Would you pray that with me? Would you say, Lord, give me that water. Lord, give us your water. Let nothing be held back. You scaled the walls for us. If I could take just one more minute of your time, maybe you're here tonight, And you've never met Jesus Christ personally. What I want you to know is that he came into this world as a man. God as a man. And he felt every temptation. He suffered through every weakness. He felt every appetite. And yet he overcame all of it. But then he went to a cross. And he died absorbing the punishment that every sin purchased. And on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them. And he finished it with, it is finished. He paid the price for forgiveness and freedom. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and asked him to save you and know you and free you and infuse you with eternity and to fill you with himself, and you want to know his salvation, I would ask you right now to shoot your hand up in the air and say, I want Jesus. I see hands. I want Jesus. I believe. I desire. I receive. Would you all pray this prayer with me so that no one prays alone? Jesus, I open my heart to you. I believe in who you are. And I want to be saved. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. Save me from my sins. Fill me with living water. Help me to know you. To walk with you. And to live before you. To know your love in my heart and in my life. I want to follow you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.